Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in German Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Leah Greenberg. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Caroline Kita about her book, Jewish Difference and the Arts in Vienna, Composing Compassion in Music and Biblical Theater, published by Indiana University Press in 2019. Welcome to the podcast, and thank you for joining us. Thank you, Leah. Glad to be here. So Caroline Kita is Associate Professor of German and Comparative Literature at Washington University in St. Louis. She received her PhD from Duke University, and her scholarship focuses on German and Austrian culture in the 19th and 20th centuries. Caroline's interests include aesthetic philosophy, music and literature, drama, and sound studies. Her recent work focuses on the soundscapes and radio dramas uh, by Ingeborg Bachmann, Ilse Eichinger, Günther Eich, and Heinrich Boll, among others. Caroline is also co-editor with Jennifer Kipsinski of a volume of essays entitled The Arts of Democratization, Styling Political Sensibilities in Postwar Germany, forthcoming with University of Michigan Press in 2022. Her articles have appeared in the German Quarterly, the Journal of Austrian Studies, and more. And Caroline has studied at the University of Vienna, the University of Potsdam, and the University of Duisburg-Essen. She's been the recipient of numerous grants, including the Fulbright Grant to Austria, and she's also served as faculty fellow at the Center for the Humanities at Washington University in St. Louis. And that now brings us to Caroline's newest book, which brings together philosophy, Bible, music, and the politics of the day in Vienna around the turn of the century. So I wanted to start by asking if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and a little bit about what brought you to this particular project. It's something that you uh, touch on briefly in the introductory pages of your book as well. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I became interested in these sort of intersections of music and literature, I guess, very early on in my studies. I um, have played music from a young age. I played the viola and the piano. And um, I first, my first real 
deep engagement with the music of Gustav Mahler was during a study abroad program in Vienna, my junior year of college. And I had chosen to go to Vienna primarily for music, uh, to, um, to play viola, play in chamber groups and take lessons. And in the course of another uh, course that I was taking while I was there, I got to know Mahler's work a little bit better. I was asked to write a paper on his third symphony. And that was the first time I stumbled upon the figure Siegfried Lippiner, who also plays a role in my book. Um, and when I returned to my home institution, I went to my German professor and said, I want to write a thesis about Siegfried Lippiner. And he told me, I have no idea who that is, but you should find out. And that kind of steamrolled that project. So already from an early age, I, um, I ended up writing a senior thesis uh, on Mahler's Second Symphony and its sort of philosophical inspirations and Lippiner played a small role there. Uh, but then I applied for a Fulbright grant to go back to Austria and really try to delve more into this relationship. So I had a year in Vienna studying at the university and working a little bit in the archives there. And then that then became part of my dissertation project. So the core of this book really began with an interest in music and literature and this unique friendship and intellectual relationship between um, a very well-known composer and a very little-known um, poet philosopher. When it came to, after I uh, finished the um, dissertation and it came to sort of conceiving it as a book, I, I had already known from early stages of the project that the questions, the things that most drew me to Lippiner and Mahler's works, these intersections of music and narrative, the grappling with questions of religious and cultural identity, these were concerns that were resonating much more broadly in this period and were I was noticing emerging with particular acuity in the works of other poets and composers of Jewish descent. And so I really wanted to, um, when it came time to write the book, to expand on that and to bring these um, figures into conversation with uh, other contemporaries. And so that's how Schoenberg and Richard Bear Hoffmann and Stefan Zweig became a part of the project. Wonderful. And and so could you first perhaps lay out for listeners the sort of core thesis of of the book, and then uh, then maybe expand on two very central themes uh, which you talk about in relationship to to music and the role that music can take, and that is the relationship between compassion and community. Of course, yeah. So the book explores how compassion, as both a philosophical or ethical precept and as an aesthetic discourse, sort of converged in um, discourses in ni- early late 19th and early 20th century German culture, and particularly in Vienna at the turn of the century. Um, And it explores the works of two composers, Mahler and Schoenberg, and three poets, Lippiner, Berhoffmann, and Zweig, all of Jewish descent, who turn to the text of the uh, Hebrew and Christian Bible to compose dramatic musical well, musical and dramatic works that thematize this idea of compassion. And I mentioned it's both a philosophical and aesthetic discourse because it was drawing on the concept of compassion. In German, the word is mitleid, literally suffering with this idea of compassion as a overcoming of difference, a uh, a moment of connection between self and other. 
and also as a key aesthetic discourse. So compassion also becomes a key term in the theater of 19th century Germany as um, describing the moment of connection between the audience and the performers on stage, this sort of crystallization, the emotional connection in which one sees a dramatic work and feels um, that the story being portrayed is one's own story. And these are, so compassion is from its very core, both as a sort of ethical principle and in the aesthetics of the theater, very much connected to moments of community. And what I was so drawn to when I um, was looking at these works of biblical theater and music drama and and symphonies of this time um, by Jewish writers and composers is how this idea of compassion was was centrally at the core and particularly in a constellation of, of responding to or overcoming moments of Jewish difference. So in all of these works, um, not only were they drawing on sort of biblical texts, but core stories that were about moments of conflict or otherness in the Bible. Um, Adam, uh, sorry, uh, Cain and Abel, uh, Jacob and Esau, um, the lone prophet Jeremiah. And so I wanted to explore more about how compassion might have been understood um, by these writers and authors as a way of creating uh, community and as a way of responding to what they saw as a sort of co-opting of this discourse of compassion, which is really meant to overcome otherness as a way of isolating or othering Jews in discourses of this time. So there was from writers such as Arthur Schopenhauer and um, writers and composers like Richard Wagner, uh, a popular conversation about compassion as being a particularly German or Christian characteristic, but Jews were incapable of compassion, that their devotedness to the law, uh, to Jewish law made them uh, pure rationalists, incapable of feeling, incapable of feeling compassion. So I was so curious about how this idea of the uncompassionate Jew might have been um, at the core of these works and as a a mode of overcoming that to um, create new modes of community in this time of really deep political and cultural fragmentation. And I was wondering, too, you mentioned that you'd started this as a dissertation project, uh, and obviously the, it, it takes quite a bit of time to then um, to develop that into a book project. I was wondering how perhaps your your thought and contextual, contextualization of the issues at stake perhaps evolved over time through different contemporary issues of compassion and community and the othering of, 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 of people within without our perceived communities. Yeah, I mean, as I was writing this, it became the, the idea of compassion was always lurking. It was it's very present in Mahler's um, in the text that he chose to set to music and that in his description of his symphonies and also a, clearly a key term for Lipinar. So that had always been lurking in the background, but it really came to the fore when I brought these other writers and composers into conversation and that it struck me as such an important um, topic to be reading and thinking about in this moment, you know, even a hundred years later or more um, about how, art can bring together people of such different mindsets and personal persuasions about how the power of art to forge these connections and how art is always about challenging and rethinking ways of seeing and being in the world. And um, I just felt like this um, 
these these case studies really offered an interesting way of of thinking about that in a past cultural moment that that resonated in a very strong way for me today. And you you mentioned the different figures that you focus on, such as Mahler, such as Arnold Schoenberg, uh, Bea Hoffmann, and Stefan Zweig. And of course, the first figure you mentioned was this very much less known figure, Siegfried Liebner. Uh, who also had an influence on Wagner. So I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about your path to uncovering more about um, Liebner and uh, how you were able to piece together his correspondence and his role in the intellectual and musical life of Vienna at the time. Sure, yeah, it was um, it was a strange process, a difficult one, and involved um, a lot of digging and a lot of luck. <laughs> But I, um, as I mentioned, I, I stumbled upon him when I was reading about Mahler, and he's mentioned as a sort of minor figure in a lot of the biographies of Mahler and, and um, writings on his works. Um, but when I set out to really figure out who he was, um, I encountered a lot of challenges because he doesn't have a uh, Nachlass or archive uh, to turn to. He was um, born in uh, Galicia in the Habsburg area of, of, of Poland in 1856, came to Vienna as a young man and seems to have sort of raised himself on his on his own. Um, but he was recognized early on as a very bright intellectual, very engaging public speaker, um, very intelligent, very drawn to the ideas of Nietzsche. And many um, of his contemporaries saw him as sort of the premier interpreter of Nietzsche's writings in Vienna. And, and this is when he was only 18 years old. He kind of created this circle around him at the University of Vienna where he would hold speeches and um, and uh, interpret a lot of these ideas about art and redemption. I'm thinking here very of early Nietzsche's writings, such as The Birth of Tragedy um, and, and of um, Wagner's aesthetic philosophies as well. Um, so he wrote and spoke quite prolifically, but then his writings seemed to have um, disappeared. And um, one of the challenges of this was was trying to piece that together. So I found, you know, in Mahler's writing, some letters that were left of theirs, although many of those have, have somewhat disappeared or potentially were destroyed by Mahler's wife, Alma, who had a notorious, um, uh, she and Libiner were notorious enemies. Um, but the, there were some letters there. I was able to piece it together from other contemporaries and mutual friends of Mahler and Libiner, such as the conductor Bruno Walter, who had um, published his memoirs and speaks um, quite, or writes quite a bit about Libiner. Um, Lippiner was connected to, uh, he went to the same gymnasium as Freud, as in high school as, as Freud. So there was mention of him in Freud's writings. Uh, he had a correspondence with Nietzsche. And then most famously with Wagner, he was actually, Lippiner was invited to Bayreuth by Wagner and was uh, in the, something of an interview for him to be the sort of mouthpiece or spokesperson for the Bayreuth Blätter for Wagner's sort of journal um, uh and but he kind of butted heads with Wagner at this meeting, and their falling out, um, well, indicated a kind of tr- shift in trajectory for Lipiner's career. Um, but he was connected to all of these interesting people. So a lot of the work was just digging and trying to find who knew him and how to kind of put this together. Um, I was also able to track down his last living relative, his grandson, who was living in Sweden, and I was uh, able to interview him and find out a little bit more. 
Um, but the, uh, from what I can tell, the family fell into financial hardship and many things were sold. Some things were destroyed by Lipiner himself because he was a very critical of his own work and certain things he didn't want to be published. Um, but then also in the process of my researching him, things popped up. So there was uh, the original manuscript of a dramatic poem that he wrote in uh, when he was only 16 years old, appeared at a flea market in Graz and was rediscovered. So there's, um, it is my hope that there may be more of Lipner's writings out there. But what I was able to put together was um, based on, you know, some correspondence that I could find, anecdotes from from friends and uh, and mutual acquaintances. And um, then the few works that were published um, and a few dissertations on him from the early 1930s. So he's a very fascinating figure and very, um, yeah, misunderstood and, and not and not known today. Mm-hmm. And and go, coming to his his own works uh, that you were able to, to look at, I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about uh regarding the theme of compassion and reversing notions of, of Jews in Viennese society, what were some ways in which he reversed common anti-Semitic stereotypes and perhaps how that also influenced the works that you talk about later in the book? Sure. So Lipina was, uh, he was very interested in this idea of, of compassion of the, of the theater um, as providing a, uh, a new, space supplanting the church in some ways as this new space of um, community and of, of rediscovering the deep sort of inner spirituality of, uh, of, of all humanity. And his, many of his writings focus on this desire to rediscover these connections, to rediscover what he called a religious spirit, but it was something that would be found outside of the church, this sort of um, deep interconnection across humanity. Um, a number of these ideas were articulated in different ways by figures such as Wagner and Schopenhauer and Nietzsche. Um, and Lipinar, uh, but, but actually, interestingly enough, some of these particular writings about critiques of religion that many of us know today from Wagner's essay, Religion and Art from 1880, were actually found in Lipiner's sort of famous treatise from 1878. It was a speech that he gave at the University of Vienna on the um, uh, on the uh, rediscovery of religious elements in, in the present times. And he, he published this work. This is what inspired the invitation to Bayreuth to speak to Wagner. And then two years later, many of these ideas reappear in Wagner's writing. So there's an interesting kind of connection there. Um, but in the book, what I, I do talk quite a bit about this sort of larger philosophical understanding um, uh, that Lipiner had. But I'm interested particularly in how he tried to translate that to the stage. He wanted to compose a tetralogy of dramas. And here, you know, it calls recalls Wagner's Ring of the Nibelungen, um, that tetralogy of, of music dramas. And Lipiner wanted to do something similar, sort of epic, dramatic um, tetralogy, but he was going to call it Christus. And it was going to be inspired by these um, texts uh, from the Bible, but actually beginning with the prelude uh, with uh with the book of Genesis, with Adam. And really, it's called Adam, but the story is really about the struggle of Cain and Abel. And it, what I talk about in the book is how, um, you know, this text has been almost completely forgotten, but w- when it was first read and reviewed, it was performed once um, in Dresden, that it was seen as 
many people saw it as just a sort of repurposing of Wagner's ideas. And even to the extent these kind of anti-Semitic stereotypes about the uncompassionate Jew and the figure of Cain um, seems to embody many of these characteristics. He's sort of described as driven by kind of cold reason uh, uh, instead of feeling. He's a strict adherer to the law. Um, he's he's seen as the other in this text to his brother Abel, who is sort of this, you know, driven by emotion and is deeply in tune with nature and the world around him. And you know, this seems to be just sort of the tragic story of the downfall of Cain. But what struck me as so interesting is that Cain is actually the most interesting and contradictory and complex character in the text. And even as he seems to embody these sort of stereotypes, he's constantly pushing against them. In fact, um, he's a figure who is struggling with his faith, who's continually asserting the hypocrisy of those who wish to judge him, um, who, who, um, you know, there's a kind of critique here in, in, in Cain's writing about the hypocrisy embedded in organized religion, um, but also in philosophical and aesthetic theories such as Schopenhauer's and Wagner's that lean heavily on Christian ethics um, and that would isolate or ostracize the Jew as other, as incapable of compassion. And Cain's monologues are very much about pleading for compassion about this sort of an inner struggle of a wanting to de- a desire to belong, to be seen as a child of God. And I was struck really by this emotional depth of this figure. And he does commit the grave sin of killing his brother, but he he is really a figure in crisis. He is coded Jewish, but the, the question, and I, by coded Jewish, I mean, it seems to evoke these stereotypes, but his questioning soul really embodies these struggles of modern humanity, and that this story is the launch pad for this larger trilogy of biblical dramas was something that um, I found really striking and that resonated in interesting ways with what I was hearing in the text of Mahler's symphonies that were also seemed to be posing very similar questions. So that was sort of the starting point for my book. And that perhaps uh, makes a great transition then to the next chapter in which you focus on on Mahler. And it's therefore interesting, you've already mentioned Liebner's influence on, on Wagner, um, that Liebner also had influenced uh, Mahler himself as well. So could you tell us a bit more about um, their interactions and how that finds resonance in Mahler's work? Yeah, sure. So Mahler, um, they first met in, I'd say, assumed around 1878. They were both at the um, University of Vienna at the time. They met through a sort of a student club intellectual association called the Pannerstorfer Circle, and um, where Lippinger was already something of a leading figure and um, had a number of uh, mutual friends and engagements during that early period when Mahler was studying in Vienna. Um, their correspondence is, as I mentioned, somewhat fragmented, but they seem to have remained in very close contact until around 1902, um, when Mahler married Alma and I, uh, his wife Alma, and I mentioned earlier that there was um, a lot of animosity between Alma and Lipinar, and this led to a, a break between the poet and composer for, for a period of almost eight years. They only reconciled in um, 1910, which is shortly before they both died actually in 1911, um, Mahler of a heart condition and Lipner of cancer. So a kind of interesting and dramatic friendship that that spanned their lives. Um, but in this period um, between the late 1870s to around the turn of the century, um, they uh, corresponded with um, 
the composition of Mahler's first four symphonies. And these are the works that are most, um, can be described as most narrative. So they had, uh, he wrote um, programmatic descriptions for these works. They also, the second, third, and fourth symphonies all include songs, so text or, or choruses, a text that was set to music integrated into the song structure. So there's a number of interesting texts to read, if you will, when, when studying these early symphonies. And what I discovered when looking at the text that Mahler set to music, the descriptions he gave about the meanings of these symphonies, and all of them circle around similar ideas about um, individual struggles of um, longing for uh, for redemption for a sense of, of alienation and and reconciliation. These are themes that are kind of um, explored in different ways in each of these symphonies. And the language that Mahler uses, either from the text that he chose or even certain texts that he wrote and then set to music, echo similar ideas in Lipiner's dramas that were composed around the same time. And so in looking very closely at these correspondences, I started to um, piece together the kind of conversation that they might have been having about um, this desire for um, compassion, seeing compassion as the core of a new religious spirit, um, something that seemed to transcend a, a traditional Jewish or Christian faith, but that would um, respond to a particular sort of crisis of their um, the, the world that they were living in in that moment. And there's a number of different ways that these references appear. So some of the most um, obvious ones are, for example, the title of the first movement of Mahler's Second Symphony is uh, Totenfeier, or Funeral Rites, which was the title of an epic poem by the Polish poet Adam Mickiewicz at, that Lipiner translated into German at the same time that Mahler was um, composing his movement. So there's some of these uh, connections are closer, but others I only found from looking very closely, um, such as the lyrics that Mahler composed for the finale of the second symphony that echo the final lines of Lipiner's or, or key lines in Lipiner's epic poem, Prometheus Unbound from 1878. So there's um, a way in which they're, they were using a similar language um, and and drawing on very similar ideas. In terms of the mentorship relationship in particular, um, a lot of this can be um, parsed together from these anecdotes of their contemporaries. So um, as Natalie Bauer-Leschner, who was a, a musician and close friend of both the poet and composer um, who uh, chronicled much of the early development of um, the genesis of Mahler's early symphonies, um, mentions Lipiner multiple times about conversations that the two of them had about these uh, about these ideas, and so um, so I kind of pieced together this relationship um, through these different sources. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. 
Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Fascinating. And, and another relationship that you talk about with, with, um, with these authors and composers is the relationship to Judaism itself, both, both personally and, and sort of conceptually. So I was wondering mm. if you could tell us more about um, the famous composer Schoenberg's relationship to Judaism and how his, um, his works that you talk about Totentanz der Prinzipien and Die Jakobsleiter work to, to challenge ideas of, of Jewish difference. Yeah, Schoenberg's relationship to Jewishness is, is so fascinating, and there's so many chapters to it. Um, he was born uh, to a, a Jewish family, his, was descended on his mother's side from um, prominent uh, Jewish cantors in Prague. Um, he converted to Protestantism when he was 24, although he soon seemed to turn away from any kind of organized religion. He was very interested in the first decades of the 20th century in mysticism and theosophy. Um, he was reading a lot of the sort of avant-garde writings of Emanuel Swedenborg, um, August Strindberg, Honoré de Balzac. So he was really interested in a, in a more um, sort of open-ended idea of mysticism at this time. And then his awareness, you might say, of Jewishness or his sort of reawakening to Jewishness um, started in the early 1920s, around the time when, I mean, in the middle, really, of when he was composing this oratorio, Die Jakobsleiter, um, when he uh, was subject to overt discrimination. He talks about um, an experience he had in a summer resort in Austria, um, in which he was, um, he first became truly aware of his Jewish otherness, even despite his conversion. And over this period of the next, um, throughout the 1920s until 1933, when he eventually converted um, back to Judaism, um, he was increasingly interested and engaged with um, Jewish uh, texts and Jewish faith, and also with Zionist politics. Um, But in this book, I was interested in exploring these two works that he wrote before this more overt or conscious return to the Jewish faith. And that is, so I mentioned this Oratorio de Jakobsleiter, which remained unfinished at his death, and um, a relatively unknown uh, monodrama called Totentanz der Prinzipien that he wrote um, around the same time, in the late 19-teens. And um, in these uh, works, so one a monologue uh, or a monodrama, the other sort of a fragment of an oratorio, um, you know, I mentioned they've often been read in the context of this avant-garde spiritualism that he was exploring at this time. But um, what he was also reading at this time, Otto Schopenhauer's essay on religion, which was a text in which the philosopher articulated an argument that 
Judaism was fundamentally incompatible with his own philosophy of compassion. And thanks to the incredible archive at the Arnold Schoenberg Center in Vienna, and this, they've digitized um, so much of, of Schoenberg's writing, but even um, his his own copy of, of Schopenhauer's text and the notes that he wrote in the margin, I was able, and they're dated, so I was able to see really what he was reading while he was composing the libretto for this um, oratorio and, and for this monodrama. And in it, he's really grappling with Schoenberg, uh, sorry, excuse me, with Schopenhauer's um, depiction of Judaism as uncompassionate. And then when I looked to the texts of these works, I continue to saw um, correspondences with these images. So both, both the monodrama and the oratorio um, articulate a struggle with the idea of the Jews as the people of the law. And a um, and and this sort of characterization of the law as incompatible with compassion, and both express a sort of desire to overcome this these oppositions. And what I describe in the chapter is how both um, not only in the musical innovations that Schoenberg was developing at this time, and Jakobsleiter is a sort of turning point in his own compositional strategy. He was starting to develop what would become known as this 12-tone system of music, um, a, a, a form of music that moves away from the hierarchies, uh, hierarchies of tones that really shape the Western tonal music um, system up to this point. If he was sort of rethinking a musical language, he was also rethinking a poetic language um, to try and overcome these kind of dichotomies of Jew and Christian, the people of the law, the people of compassion, you might say. Um, and that, so I describe this um, principle of polyphony as uh, embodying not only Schoenberg's musical ideas at this point, but also the language of these really sort of unique, fragmented, um, uh, dramatic texts that he was writing at this time. And so you talk about the disruption of existing paradigms. And one um, paradigmatic figure is, of course, Wagner. And so he's a recurring presence throughout your book. So I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about uh, the role of Wagner's legacy for each of these figures that you talk about, in particular uh, for Richard Berhoffmann. How is he both a model and an object of critique in these works? Sure. Yeah, Wagner is, I, I talk in my book about this, um, this uh, sort of the Wagnerian trauma that seems to resonate with each of these um, of writers. And that's um, uh, the, and what I, I, I mean by that, and that's a term used by Michael Steinberg, but this idea that the way that Wagner's, both his aesthetic um, legacy and his um and his sort of larger philosophical views formed a, it, it was a conflicted legacy for writers of Jewish um, descent. Um, I don't think, you know, I, you can't ever claim that they were unaware of it, but there seems to be a, was a challenge or that I noticed when I was uh, um approaching each of these works with figuring out how to how to describe this relationship how one could want to model to to create epic dramatic works to 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 believe in the sort of ideas behind Wagner's works in in, in terms of aesthetics while rejecting the very divisive rhetoric of um particularly uh, anti-semitic rhetoric that um 
appears uh, in his written text, but also in his operatic works as well. And um, so what I noticed in each of these works was this really interesting and delicate negotiation of this. Um, certainly for uh, Mahler and Schoenberg, compositionally, Wagner was a, uh, a huge figure for how he um, uh, sort of redefined orchestral works. I mean, Mahler never composed an opera, but his symphonies, he reimagined the genre of the symphony almost to be like a dramatic, a music dramatic work. You know, you can see him sort of struggling in terms of genre there. And same um, with uh, Schoenberg as well. And it becomes even more prevalent perhaps in Schoenberg's later opera, Moses and Aaron. Um, but I was interested in exploring how these earlier works might also have been a uh, attempt to sort of uh, confront Wagner's uh, sort of musical legacy while sort of spinning this, um, uh, this, yeah, this just challenging uh, way that he really isolated or, or discounted a Jewish um, contribution to music. He really saw Jews as, as incapable of creating true uh, music. And so, you know, how, how did they handle that legacy? Um, Lipiner, of course, had sort of the most direct engagement with Wagner. Um, and with Beer Hoffmann is interesting. Unlike some of the other writers, he wasn't as enamored with Wagner as a person. He went to Bayreuth and was kind of dismissive, actually, of the experience. And yet he decided to compose a tetralogy of biblical works um, inspired, in his case, not by Germanic myth, but by the Hebrew Bible. And so you can't help but see this as a sort of answer in many ways. And, and it was also received, if you look at reviews of the work, many of it refer to it as a Jewish Nibelungen ring, you know, so there was this, this is clearly something that was functioning in the background. Um, but what I think is so interesting in Bear Hoffman's work, and I focus in the book primarily on uh, Jacob's Dream, which is the prelude or the first, um, the first work of the um, Tetralogy, and that it's drawing on certain ideas from Wagner. So the idea of of a mythic subject here, it's the Hebrew Bible. Um, compassion is a key theme in the work, um, but it's not. You know, if we look to a, another Wagnerian example like Parsifal, this is not um, his protagonist. Jacob is not this. You know, com compassionate fool. He's not magically possessed with the ability to feel with or understand others, it's actually a, a struggle. And that's really the topic of, uh, or the, the theme of the play. It's about Jacob coming to understand compassion through his encounters with various others, uh, a pagan slave, uh, his brother Esau, who embodies in many ways, these ideas of Christianity in this moment, or a sort of Christian other, and then the fallen angel, Samuel, who is the sort of, um, uh, gives a sort of vision of the future of the Jewish people. And Jacob has to, in each of these confrontations, he's led to a deeper understanding of his own identity. Um, he expresses compassion and solidarity with these others. But this is a, um, it doesn't sort of magically happen or we're led there. It's through a process of confrontation, of dialogue. Uh, and so I was really interested in how, you know, Bear Hoffman took this sort of model of epic drama from Wagner and really reimagined it to a space of questioning and struggling and coming to terms with and, and thinking through what a modern Jewish identity might be. And that brings us nicely then to one of the last authors or figures you look at, which is Stefan Zweig, who is quite well known for his negotiation of, of what a modern Jewish identity 
could be. So I was wondering if you could expand more on how Zweig's work engages with notions of hybridity or a dual affiliation, or even transcends a commitment to these sorts of categories altogether. Yeah, like, so like Schoenberg and Bert Hoffmann, Zweig was also looking for a language or way of conceptualizing the significance of Jewish culture for his own life, for um, European culture more broadly. And, and he was very interested in overcoming this language of Jewish difference. So I had just mentioned about Schoenberg's turn to this idea of polyphony as a way of overcoming this idea of uh, Jewishness as other or them to a Christian or German us. And for Bear Hoffman, um, the way to sort of transcend these dichotomies was to turn to dialogue, this sort of dialectical process of confrontation, alienation, reconciliation. And for Zweig, he uh, kind of came up with his own language for it, which he um, he referred to it as discursion, which he connected with the idea of uh, hovering between two poles. So it was this kind of a sense of identity that was always in flux. And I think it's interesting, you know, you mentioned hybridity or dual affiliation. I think this is a, is this a kind of transcendence of those ideas? It's, it's a, it's a sense of Jewishness that is very much it, it's about it's very much about being in flux, and there's a reason why I think music is the language that Zweig turns to to conceptualize what this Jewish identity might be. That it is um, in a constant sort of movement between uh, consonance and dissonance, uh, cacophony and euphony. Um, it is that struggle embodied within it is actually for Zweig uh, the unique contribution of Jewish culture to European you know, to the modern European self. And he was very much interested, Zweig's whole oeuvre is about transcending the national um, and the chauvinistic ideas and thinking about these larger collective identities. And what's interesting is in his biblical drama, Yeremias, um, which has often been read as a as a pacifist book, a, a play, he wrote it in the um, final years of the First World War. Um, but it's, uh, it's also very much about the compo- or the poet's own uh, kind of coming to terms with what his Jewish identity meant for him and how what were those unique attributes that might um, sort of uh, provide a template, if you will, for where um, you know a humanity, how humanity could come together in the wake of such a crisis as the First World War. So this um, biblical drama became a way for um, Zweig to really work through that. And he, um, I mentioned this, also musical forms um, being central to that. Um, here, even more so than the sort of music drama, really, Zweig was leaning on the concept of the oratorio. So there's interesting resonances, actually, with what Schoenberg was doing in Die Jakobsleiter. With Zweig, this, his, his play, actually, in its form and structure recalls at many points different um, structural formations of, of the oratorio um, and also resonates in different ways with Jewish musical life, with the cantor call and response and so on. So um, music became sort of the language for him to work through and identify this unique contribution of Jewish culture to uh, European modernity. And what interests me as well about all of these authors you talk about is their engagement with um different types of arts. So 
poetic, um, the music, um, theatrical. And I'm interested in, in the intersections of, of the arts, both within your book and sort of on a meta level in terms of your process working interdisciplinarily. Um, so I was wondering if you could perhaps reflect on how this intersection of literature, history, philosophy, and musicology um, informed you as a scholar and um, informed your process in this project? And sort of what are some of the challenges and rewards of this interdisciplinary work? It's very clear that you had to do a lot of very intense archival work, very historical, um, have an intense knowledge of literary studies, but of course, also have an intimate engagement with with music. Um, So I was wondering if you tell us more about that. Sure. Yeah, I think it's interesting that I, I kind of came into literary studies from music or music was maybe I should say German studies was the was the sort of um, crossroads of what my interest in music and literary studies. And so and coming into a Ph.D. program where in German, where I developed this project, um, having you know studied primarily music and history before that, I was um always interested in, I guess I was attuned, if you will, in different ways to, uh, and particularly in this late 19th and early 20th century German literature, the the presence, the presentness of music, of musical forms, of the ways that so many um, writers and composers were, were thinking beyond the bounds of their own uh, art forms of genres. And so I guess I was, I was, already looking and thinking about those things beforehand. I was, when I first came upon Mahler's music, what struck me about it was how it was, it was music, but it was so clearly telling a story. And I was so fascinated with the idea of how, how music can tell or speak to us or what, what are, what's its language and how does it, how does it articulate that? And you know, so kind of approaching it from both ways, thinking um, from my own experience as a musician and being interested in music, thinking about how music speaks and tells, and then from reading so much literature and engaging with it, how um, uh, literary texts can um, evoke the musical and often do so at the moment when words fail. (laughs) And that, um, you know, these other artistic forms Form a, it, they form this really interesting matrix of, um, of, of or constellations of meaning. Um, so I guess the kind of questions, the, the questions about music and sound and how they shape culture have always been in the back of my mind. And, um, you know, and I've, those have remained sort of a through, a red thread, as you might say, through, um, through my studies, thinking about how, you know, what music and sound more generally tells us about belonging and otherness in particular cultural moments, how music has been mobilized to articulate resistance uh, in different ways, how practices of listening, because I was interested in all these works as well in um, reception as well about how um, practices of listening shape how individuals and societies view the world. So these are all kind of questions that continue to um, to shape my work. And as far as in the practicalities of it, yes, it involves a lot of dancing between the disciplines, which is challenging. It's challenging. There's much more I could have and wanted to do in terms of musical analysis in the book. And, and, uh, you know, and then there were other things that I wanted to do more with the text, you know, there's always religious limitations when it comes to writing a book, but, um, I hope it opens a door and that it, you know, draws attention to some connections that, 
people might not have thought of before. Um, it draws attention to individuals that people might not have um, considered in this conversation before. And that was really my goal with this book and you know, what will motivate my future projects as well, I think. And and with regard to your future projects, I was wondering if you could tell us some more about what projects are coming next, if there are some, perhaps some untouched areas or, or areas that you didn't have the, the space uh, in the book to expand on that might find uh, their place in, in another project in the future. Yeah, well, there is one um, leftover project, and this isn't going to be immediately realized, but it was in an original uh, early version of the book that I wanted to in the kind of conclusion or final section trace, um, the sort of legacy, uh, particularly of Schoenberg, Bear Hoffmann and Zweig's works in the United States and sort of the kind of experience of exile of these works and how many of them were um, reimagined for um, uh, German Jews in exile in New York <laughs> um, and performed for audiences there. I was also interested in the work of Franz Werfel, who's sort of later than these um uh, than these writers, but who I think in his um, biblical dramatical works, in particular, um, The Eternal Road, which was his big um, biblical pageant that he worked on with um, uh, Max Reinhardt and Kurt Weil in New York, um, calls upon this sort of similar idea of epic music drama that these that these writers and composers um, were conceiving. Um, so I still hope at one point to to return to that project. Um, but sort of more immediately, I've jumped to a very different type of project, and that is I'm working with um, radio in post-war Germany. So um, the connection, while, while maybe tenuous, is goes back to these questions about um, sound and acoustics and meaning making. Um, but I've been for a long time really fascinated with the genre of radio drama, um, and how it uh, um, emerged, particularly in post-war um, Germany, as a sort of unique expressive medium. Um, how it this purely acoustic medium provided a space for uh, working through sort of the legacy of the war, of genocide, of exile, um, and really exploring these not these works not just through the texts, and many of the texts were published and they've been studied up to this point as primarily literary works, but in uncovering the original sound documents and recordings and really thinking about what was happening, how were they being staged acoustically. And um, I've had the great luck to um, find a number of these um, recordings in uh, archives in Germany. So my hope is that that will be uh, a next project that, that I take on from here. Wonderful. I'm looking forward uh, to reading that, reading about that. And it sounds like a very exciting process of unearthing new material. So I think I've taken up enough of your time today. And I thank you so much for joining us. And it was a pleasure to hear about um, your recent book and about what's to come next. Thank you. Thank you so much. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18+. Plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.